With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Sartell Radio for Monday, December the 13th. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Wherever you are across the street or around the world, so glad you decided to spend a little time with us, whether you're watching on the YouTube page or on the Facebook live stream for Big Talker FM, listening on any of the podcasting platforms. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you subscribing and listening and sharing and telling others about the program. A lot to talk about today. We're going to talk a little bit of living history. We're going to talk to our friend and economist Jericho Hill about inflation and the economy and how we're talking about the inflation and economy uh, to make sure we turn down the news cycle noise on that issue that just seems to not want to go away. Uh, Make sure we're getting to the information we actually need, especially going into the holiday seasons, which is one of the times of the year where people really pay attention to the economy, really pay attention to their finances because they want to gift, give to loved ones and themselves. So we'll talk a little economy a little bit later, but first, Let's start with some tragic news, but we want to bend it to how we're using our social media to discuss things like culture and politics. I'm sure you saw over the weekend, uh, late Friday night, early Saturday morning, the absolute destruction uh, throughout parts of America, six different states, 30 different tornadoes, a massive, violent, catastrophic storm system uh, wrecked havoc um, in Kentucky in Missouri and parts of uh, Illinois and elsewhere, uh, the pictures and the images are devastating. What was going on on social media in the wake of it was depressingly predictable. Um, We talk a lot on this program about turning down the news cycle noise. That's because there's just a lot of noise out there. There's a lot of reactionism. There's a lot of people just doing not good things with the power of technology that they hold in their hands. So I'm just going to be really, really blunt with this. When there's a massive natural disaster and you see it on your social media and you log on to your social media to comment on it, your first question as a human being and as a functional adult should be, what can I do to help these poor people that are suffering? If you don't have an immediate answer for how you can help, just don't say anything. You don't have to take a natural disaster and immediately take it and the suffering of real-life people in real-life places and plug it into your online political debates that are ongoing. Some things just shouldn't be fodder, especially while we're still having recovered all the bodies and while family members are still wondering where their loved ones are. I don't care if you don't like the politicians from certain states. I don't care about the stereotypes you have about certain states. When there's a massive natural disaster and we have dozens and dozens of people killed, and in this case, we have entire towns wiped off the map and destroyed, your first reaction should not be what your politics are. It should be what can we do to help those people. And if you can't think of something to help those people, just shut up for a couple of days. We talk about the 24-hour rule after breaking news to make sure we get the story right. If you get super emotional about these things and want to talk about something other than the suffering of the people involved, why don't you institute your own 24-hour rule and just give it a break? Now, if you want to criticize politicians for not preparing or for some hypocrisy for how they funded other places and not themselves or vice versa, they denied funding for other places but not themselves and now want it for a 
emergency or a natural disaster, there's a time for that. And the time for that will be after the recovery process is done while they're building back. Then we can discuss policy. Sometimes we forget that in the sending of our cat pictures and our memes and our joking around online, we're talking about a lot of political and cultural events. We're talking about people. We should always keep our culture and politics people centered because otherwise we start losing track of our own humanity and we end up going really, really dark places. Now, having said all that and ranted about it for a minute, let's talk about how you can help these people. I would suggest and I strongly recommend that you follow people from the actual area on your social media. Try to use local news as much as possible on your social media when keeping up with these events. There's a couple reasons for that. Uh, everything's nationalized in our country now. We talk about it with our politics all the time, but our news media coverage is very nationalized. This is a perfect opportunity to follow and support local reporters, local on-the-ground reporters who are covering these things. Because now that we're starting to talk about how we can help and people want to donate and other things, you will be abreast to what's actually going on on the ground. I don't want to disparage any national or international aid organizations. Many of them do great work. But part of their fundraising process, because they have to fundraise all the time, because they have massive amounts of overhead to have national coverage or international coverage on the things they do. And sometimes that can run into problems when they go to get into a locality, especially in rural America, especially in remote areas. So I would encourage everybody to do this. And this isn't just me saying this. We experienced this in West Virginia in the 2016 floods where a major aid organization, probably the most well-known one, didn't even come in for over a week. And then when they came in, they made a shambles of it because the local people had had to take care of it themselves, had a pretty good process in place. And then when they showed up, it became a mess. Here's the problem. If you're going to donate money, please donate it directly to the areas affected as best you can. Follow on social media people directly from these areas so you know what local organizations are doing the good work on the ground. This is something where I know a lot of people just want to give money to help or they just want to give money because it makes them feel like they're helping. And that's a good thing. We ought to be doing that. We ought to help these folks. But part of helping them, and if you're going to really care, means spending a few minutes researching where you're sending your money, not just smashing the send button and thinking you did your part. Follow these people. You might even make friends with some of them. Reach out to them. The power of social media means you can befriend anybody, anywhere, at any time if you just put a little effort into it. And those folks are going to need some friends right now. A lot of them probably want to know that the wider world is paying attention to them, especially in the coming days and in the coming weeks once the news coverage starts to rescind. But the building process is only just beginning and the grieving process is only just taking hold. So I would encourage everyone, get involved on your social media by engaging with people in these communities, organizations in these communities, local organizations, church organizations, religious organizations, school organizations. There'll be all kinds of local organizations that can take that money and put it directly in the community without it going into these massive companies and corporations, which is what the major aid organizations are. They have corporate structures. They've got to pay a lot of people. They got a lot of overhead. Put it directly into these communities as much as possible. It'll do more good that way. You can feel better about it that way. And it's a real life example of putting your money where your mouth is and turning down the news cycle noise, not just in what we're discussing, but turning down the noise on how to actually help people in a very real life way. One of the great things about America is our charity. There's all kinds of statistics about how charitable the American people are in giving money. We need to also have some discernment in how we give our money and make sure we're giving that money in a smart way, 
in an effective way and getting it to the people who need it the most. And we know we'll rise to the challenge and we know the people there will rebuild and they will come back and we should help them as much as we can. And in the meantime, whether we give money or not, our thoughts and prayers are with them and we need to keep them in mind in the days and weeks coming ahead. It's Hertel Radio for Monday, December the 13th. So glad you're with us, whether you're listening on the streams or on Big Talker or on YouTube or wherever. Thank you so much for being with us. A lot of good show today. We're going to talk about some economics with Jericho Hill. Uh, we're going to talk a little piece of living history that you can walk through through the power of technology. Uh, a very important story because a lot of America's immigrant past folks may not be able to walk through it like they did back then, but they can use technology to do it. Tells us a lot about where we've been. Tells us a lot about things that haven't changed as much as we like to think they are and we need to continue to work on. More Hotel Radio right after this. back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donson. Thank you for joining us. The year of our Lord 2021 is almost over. We are careening to the end of it. Remember how much we were looking forward to it when 2020 was going, and we'll see what happens in 2022. We hope you all are well. Thank you for joining us. I love history. Uh, I've always had a fascination with history, and the Washington Post has a fascinating look into a very important part of American history because so many Americans, especially immigrant populations that were coming into America, into New York City, uh, and then dispersing across the continent during the major migration waves, uh, went through this experience. So what the Washington Post has done is they have a interactive, uh, it's an article, but it's an interactive walkthrough of the Tenement Museum in New York City. This property, 97 Orchard Street, has been preserved as a late 1800s tenement. And they had to balance some things because they have to have modern safety concerns and things like that. But they've preserved as much of it as possible. And it's really, really fascinating how this works and what it looks like. And it's a great window into the past. Um, for example, in these really rough shot apartments around 1890, the landlords, I'm reading from the piece, installed windows between the parlor and the kitchen to increase airflow and light at the time thought to help reduce TB outbreaks. They also liked trying to make their spaces more attractive in the competitive world of short-term tenement rentals. <laughs> Some things never change. The, uh, at the same time, there was a larger movement to improve conditions in New York tenements. In 1901, a new tenement law required indoor plumbing and gas lighting. It was dark because they had no electricity back in those days. It was lit with gas, little gas lights. You had to keep feeding the meter, the gas meter with quarters. Can you imagine this? Having a vending machine to get your light in your house. You know, I remember my father getting up on a chair and throwing a quarter. This is a quote from uh, the audio from one of them former tenants. I remember my father getting up out on a chair and throwing a quarter in when the lights went out, you know, just put another quarter in and we conserved it as much as we could. Now, I've heard the old timers refer to air conditioning as bought air, but that was actually happening for these people. Um, it's an amazing walkthrough. There's a basement saloon. Uh, you can see the, the decayed walls, the bathrooms. Uh, the apartments didn't have their own bathroom. The toilet was in the hallway. Um, an air shaft was built into the hallway. It's just a big hole uh, to eliminate odors from the toilets. Walls were moved and some tenements had less space as of 1905, reading from the piece again. 
when these water closets were installed, the residents' water closet here being just a toilet and a it looks like a closet you could barely get in. The residents of this apartment no longer had to descend to the basement level to use the bathroom. Can you imagine going to the basement of your building to use the bathroom? Uh, continuing this walkthrough, it's fascinating when you start looking at some of the bedrooms. Uh, this door at the rear of what is known as the Levine family apartment allowed residents to move between the front and the back of the building in case of a fire. You had to go through each other's apartments to get out in case of a fire. The door was supposed to be kept unlocked, which meant privacy had to be negotiated between neighbors. Lines between private and public spaces were fluid, and children who grew up in buildings like this one remembers using the city as a playground when conditions were cramped at home. There was a living room, a kitchen, and a bedroom. Each room had a window in it, but one room had a window was like from the kitchen to the bedroom. So these are just windows between rooms, which the law demanded that each room should have a window, even though it wasn't going anywhere. But they put a window to make it legal, but it was covered all the time. To build public support for reform, progressive activists often re represented New York's tenements as dark, overcrowded, and dangerous. And to be fair, that was usually the case. They were, but they were also homes and often workplaces. The Levin family used this room as both a living and a garment-making space. An 1892 inspector's report indicated that there were three employees working full-time in this front room making dresses, putting in 10-hour shifts. You want to talk about sweatshops, this is a would-be small living room by anybody's standard, and they got three people in here working 10-hour shifts making garments. Just amazing. Uh, continuing on. Uh, in 1924, the fear of immigration reached a peak in the United States passed the Johnson-Reed Act, barring most immigrants from Asia and cutting by 80% the arrivals from the Western Hemisphere. In 1934, New York required landlords to replace wooden stairs with brick or masonry. Obviously, wooden stair fires were horrible because not only does it spread the fire, but it cuts off your only means of escape. And it was a horrific fate that too many people met back then. Back to the article. Fewer immigrants, stricter housing codes, and upward social mobility depressed the demand for apartments in such buildings. A year later, the owner, uh, this would be 1925 now, uh, the owner of 97 Orchard Street evicted his remaining tenants and closed the upper floor apartments, leaving only a few businesses on the lower two levels. For more than half a century, these apartments fell into ruin until the tenement museum moved in and started to recreate the lives of the building's former occupants. Millions of Americans can trace their ancestry back to buildings like this one, and collective memory frequently softens the narrative. Conditions were so often so dire and disease rampant, and tenement laws were driven as much by xenophobia and a genuine concern for the poor. The fear of outsiders, often associated with actual and metaphorical disease, continues to shape America's views of our own identity and security. Today, these buildings are a part of a thriving neighborhood, with many apartments joined to create larger, more habitable spaces. And the Tenement Museum continues its mission to preserve and memorialize the lives, not of the great and the famous, but of the ordinary Americans who did their best to make this place home. I often wondered, uh, being a West Virginia, uh, Appalachia was heavily settled by immigrants, uh, heavily Scott-Irish uh, folks that came down. And a lot in the coal fields, you had a lot of Eastern Europeans and others. Uh, you had free slaves from the South coming North looking for work and these sorts of things. And I always wondered why they settled in a place like West Virginia. And then you read about the New York City of the 19th and early 20th century and just the absolute squalor these folks that came over had to deal with. And then you go to somewhere like in Ireland and you see all the green. And then I go to my home in West Virginia and I see all that green. And you think of these tenement leavings. Those folks must have thought they died and gone home again when they saw all those mountains and greenery and open space. 
it's an important part of our history because so many people immigrated through New York City, Ellis Island, that sort of thing, and then spread all through the country. We should understand as they spread across the country, the experiences they had in those tenements must have had a great effect on them. Not just their living conditions, it would have affected their politics, it would have affected their worldview, uh, it affected the way they sensed community, it affected the way they raised their families. These are all threads for many Americans who trace their lineage through those people groups. These are all little threads you can pull on to go back in time and see where some of the way we are now came from. And in the case of how lower income peoples are treated, how immigrants are treated, and how inner city folks are treated, maybe not as much has changed as we would like to kid ourselves that it has. And we can learn that we can do better because we can see what happens when people are given better conditions, more freedom and a better chance at life in America. And that's the American dream, ain't it? More freedom, more opportunity, and a better way to go about things. An interesting piece of history, it's at the Washington Post. It is audio, it's a visual thing. You can click through it. You can actually walk through this building. It's a really interesting piece. Highly recommend you check it out, uh, especially if you have that kind of lineage in your people groups from your own history. Might be a window back to how your own ancestors came from, and either which way, you might learn something about how somebody else had to live and broaden your viewpoint. We have more Hertel coming up right after this. talk to a good friend. He's a contributor at Ordinary-Times.com. He is a government uh, economist, and he is also a pro wrestling aficionado, which he has written on before. But how are you, my friend, Jericho Hill? Hey, Andrew, how's it going? I'm doing quite well. Uh, My daughter's gone down for her little nap, so we're all ready to do this. I think all economists should have to have toddlers around when they're working. I think it would keep them invested in the world in a real way beyond just numbers and such. Would that be, would that be something they should add? Like they say, all leaders should have to have to do customer service. Maybe all economists should have to deal with toddlers at some point. What do you think? Everybody needs a toddler and a dog. A toddler. Well, a lot of people get the dog before they get the toddler as practice. I don't know how well that works. Um, but certainly, I'm, I'm much more exposed to, to certain uh, real world items, uh, you know, things, you know, with with having a kiddo around. Like, for instance, um, just this past, you know, Thursday, my kid's daycare shut down for the first time in the whole COVID pandemic, not due to COVID, but because the heater broke. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, those are the little things that lots of lots of people go through that we never see in the data. Yeah. I'd say it's nice to experience it, but. Speaking of data, I I think a lot of this, let's talk inflation for a second. I think part of this problem, and you can, you, you explain it to me because you are, you is one and I'm not, is part of the problem here that a lay person like me, inflation, we're kind of in social media, just using inflation, meaning 
things are more expensive in general, but to you, to an economist, inflation is a very specific thing. It's a metric. It's a terminology. Uh, is that part of the problem here is we're just talking about two different things a lot of the time because inflation means something really specific to you, but in the social media and the news media realm, we're talking about inflation to mean everything's more expensive in general. So, I mean, that's certainly one measure of inflation. I mean, when I, when I think about it, I think about like, is it a, is it cost? Is it a cost push in play inflation? Is it demand pull inflation? You know, so there's different, different sort of um, buckets in which we could put inflation into. So what is this? What is the price rise being driven by? And so if you're a policymaker, right, you, you'd want to know what was causing inflation to go because that should tell you what you should do as policy in response to it, right? And as a as a layperson, as a voter. Right, I think it would be helpful for someone to know this is inflation that our political powers to that be have some control over. And this is inflation that really it doesn't matter which color the White House is, it was coming regardless. What what's the easier way to explain it? Because I know we talked about in the pandemic, I've had you on the podcast before. We talk about a supply side inflation thing that's supply chain, people mm-hmm. just can't get stuff. There's a scarcity element to it. Mm-hmm. Um where where's the line here where all the things the government's been trying to do with COVID response, with policy response, with all the stimulus stuff, is there a delineated line or something that the lay folks like me that don't really understand economics that much should be paying attention to? Like, hey, we had one problem, but because of our reaction to the last problem or the current problem, here's where we're going to start having another problem. Is there something like that you're watching on that we can kind of start watching for? Or are you concerned at all about that? Well, what I've been watching in the inflation data was what's going on with the two biggest contributors. And the two biggest contributors have been gas and used cars. And both of those uh, items, basically, they account for about 50%, give or take a few points, of overall the inflation statistic that you hear cited. So 6.8%, they're accounting for about 3.4% of that right now. Um they're huge. They've been increasing like crazy. Um, gasoline's risen 58%. How much do our politicians like control the price of gasoline? I would argue not much. Um, you know, how much do we control for the price of, of used cars, which is really a, 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 in part because the economy shut down, people didn't drive as much, there's been less used cars getting onto the market. Um, there's been, uh, you know, other issues, you know, with that supply chain. So I would say, you know, when I think about, you know, trying to piece into this data, you know, I, I think that about half of it is from easily documented issues with the supply chain. Now, I don't want to like act like the amount of spending that we are, are seeing, the fact that we had so many COVID checks, the fact that we've had a child tax credit, the fact that we did mortgage forbearance and we've done other things, didn't have an effect of putting cash into people's wallets as well. Um, and of course, more more cash chasing after the same amount of goods or even less goods, because guess what? All the goods are clogged at the ports or over in Asia because they can't even get ships to ship from Asia because they can't get their workers vaccinated. So their ships are shutting down. Right. Which we can't control. You know, um, you know, let, 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 let's be clear. Like there, there's clearly like uh, enough enough to blame external factors. And there's also some blame for 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 political uh, reaction as well. Jericho Hill joining us on Hertel Radio. Uh, setting the politics aside for just a second, we saw back during the COVID pandemic where you have things like panic buying, 
when you saw, you know, the, the now infamous and joked about toilet paper run where, you know, people just basically wiped out the, the replenishment systems for what, 10 days or whatever. Uh, really, though, the only two times people really pay attention to the economy is when there's a massive shortage, like the toilet paper thing. And the holidays, we're getting ready to come into the holidays. This is the one time of the year where everybody's running economy stories. People, this is just kind of the time of the year the layperson pays attention to economics. What is it your feeling of this economic holiday season? And I don't just mean the the shopping part of it and because they always want to talk about retail sales, but what's your overall feeling? Because you talked about like gas and used cars, your car and your gas, that's a huge expenditure for most households. What's your impression of what this holiday season is going to look like economically? Because that kind of sets the tone for the next quarter most years. Well, I didn't even talk about housing because we know that there's a lot of housing markets as well that have been uh, shooting up in, in price. Although overall, the housing price cost you know, rise has not been that much more than what we'd expect in normal times. Uh, clearly, in some markets, it's been quite substantial. And you know, folks who are who rent are seeing their rents go up by double digits in some markets. So, you know, I don't want to just ignore you know that side of the story too. But look, gas is. Let's think about like purchases that we make every day, and that's what that is what is recognizable and cognizable uh, to the average person. And yeah, they're they're seeing those go up. So. You know, they're probably, you know, I, I would imagine if, if I drove a lot, I would be, you know, very concerned about the price of gas, you know, as well. I'm one of the fortunate folks that, you know, gets to work from home pretty much all the time. And my grocery store is three blocks away. So I don't really drive that much. Um, you know, so in terms of like what we're expecting for like the holiday season now, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a holiday economist, many search the imagination. But if I read the data that I that I that seem reported, it looks like online sales. Um, and sort of deliveries through, you know, your your Amazon's, UPS, FedEx is going to do pretty well. Um, the question is, does the gas price change? Does that impact folks' travel plans? Um, and does that keep, you know, families from being able to be together as much as they want to? You know, that that would be pretty salient, I think, on voters' minds. Um, and I get what's going on, and, um, you know, at the political level. And I wanted to pivot to this, you know, as an economist, you know, I look at what's going on with inflation. And I think a year out, two years out, and I sort of have ideas of where that's going and I'm happy to talk about that. A politician, um, if they're looking further out than November, 2022, they're not a very good politician. And in fact, they're not a very good politician if they're not looking further out than their next primary election. You know, and that, that's their incentive. And we, we, shouldn't, we should note that there is that tension in economic policy, right? Where the economists were thinking what's, what's going on in the long run and how do, how do we plan for that accordingly? Politicians do not have that same incentive structure. Their incentive structure is, is by the year or by every two years. Yeah. I had it explained to me one time by economists. It's like, you're talking about the difference between a football coach and a football GM. You are, yes. you have, you have that inbuilt tension because the coach needs to win now, but what he wants to do may not be long-term what the rest of the team over three, four, five years needs to do. Mm -hmm. That's the way it got explained to me once. Is there, That's a is, really good way to think about it. I think so, yeah. Yeah. Is there a way to explain uh, for us that try to watch this in the news? Because the news cycle that we have now is always reactionary. You know, it's almost a, it's almost ingrained now that every time we have economic news, unexpectedly, you know, no matter what it is. Um, <laughs> Actually, I think, I think, I think the funny thing is, I think today the inflation uh, report, the CPI actually came in almost right at expectations and that was unexpected. <laughs> <laughs> See, it just works for everything. But just for people like you know me that you have to explain this stuff to me like I'm five years old, 
how where where can we get that information? Because like you said, the economy and politics are two parallel things, but they're not running at the same speed. So how do we get ahead of the news a little bit and stay abreast of politics when you have a news cycle going one speed and then what's actually going on in economics running at a different speed, but they're parallel and they do intersect a lot. So a uh, really good way I would I would say to you is one, um, you can read, you know, when the, when the, if you're so inclined, you can read the, uh, the BLS, um, CPI report when it comes out, like the one that came out this morning, it's actually not that bad in terms of language. Um, it's fairly easy to, to track. I mean, it says the energy index rose 33% over the last 12 months. I think we all understand what that means. Um, and you don't need to be an economist with a fancy degree to figure that out. So you can get a lot of that information, you know, sort of just right from the report and it's very in clear language. Now, if you want to know how economists are thinking long-term, uh, look, uh, a great source that I would say is uh, Bloomberg runs a survey that comes out about once a quarter, uh, and it has essentially uh, economists' expectations of inflation and industry, you know, analysts' expectations of inflation. And so you can sort of see, like, what's going on. So, for instance, I, I'm looking at this Bloomberg uh, report from a couple of weeks ago, and, you know, we've seen that um, close-term inflation over the next quarter or two um, as they've done these surveys, has been trending upward. So we've been expecting more and more and more inflation. And a lot of that is, is because of um, supply chain issues with respect to Delta and causing havoc. And other parts of it is going to be people spending more money now that we're getting closer and closer to holiday season and people spending more money because they're, they're going out and they're seeing their family. We've been cooped up for a long time. It's a lot to ask from a social creature to stay cooped up and people are going to spend. And I get that. Um, but then if we look at next year, we look at quarter two, quarter three, uh, you know, the expectations have not been shifting that much. And we're still looking at, you know, low, low threes, high twos is what the expectation that will be at around uh, Labor Day. We're talking economics and the economy with economist Jericho Hill, our friend. He's a contributor to Ordinary-Times.com. Uh, more Hertel Radio and more conversation with him right after this. Radio with economist Jericho Hill, good friend of ours, an excellent writer. Make sure you're reading his stuff, uh, not just on the economy, on a lot of other stuff as well. He talks about politics and pro wrestling being analogous, uh, something I've used quite a bit myself because it's apropos. Uh, Jericho Hill, how are you, my friend? Uh, doing fantastic today. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, More than happy I, to. I want to ask you, because we're talking economics, the thing that just seems to be breaking people's minds when they try to dig into this is we have kind of a unique situation where we have a low unemployment figure, which is usually considered to be a really good thing. Yep. But all people keep hearing about is a labor shortage. This just does not make sense to people. It doesn't make sense to economists in a lot of ways as well from what they've been saying. 
Um, how do we navigate that? Because it's kind of a unique thing. Doesn't seem like it's happened a lot, but it just seems to be a reality that both of those things are true, even though everything we've kind of been brought to bear to understand is they really shouldn't be, but they are. So let's back up a little bit. You know, we talked about, you're talking about the unemployment rate and one, there's, there's a lot of different kinds of unemployment and the one that right. is like talked 20, about. What is, is it like, like 20 different ones in the so actual unemployment ones. rate? So everybody, everybody says U3. And that's, that's right. the general unemployment rate that's, that's reported out by the government and whatnot, and that's the one we use. There's also something that we consider sort of the labor force participation rate. That's how many people that would be considered part of the labor force. That's like your 18 to, to 62 or 64, I can't remember the number, um, you know, that we have available that could be working. And there's also the employment to population ratio. And we sort of watch these, these metrics because they tell us different things. And what we can see is, if we compare ourselves to like pre-COVID crisis, um, some of those measures still have not caught back up to where they were pre-crisis. So that says that, you know, it tells me there are some folks that were in the labor market that were working in 2018 that for a variety of reasons are still not back. Now, it could be because these folks are holding, are, are deciding that they don't want to work um, their retail job for the crappy pay and they're de demanding higher higher wages and higher benefits. And so they're sitting on the sidelines and they're able to afford to do that. Uh, it could be that you had some workers who were 60 years old and decided that COVID was enough and uh, they wanted to enjoy their their years they had remaining and, and not keep working. And so they left before you know, you, you know, we would expect them to. Um, so there's a lot of things to unpack there, but I think, you know, you, we could say this is a reason that we maybe don't want to worry about it. But I think that in general, those those measures tell us that there's still a decent chunk of folks that are sitting on the sidelines who could work, who are making a decision not to work. Now, how do you coax those folks back to to, to come and work? I, I'm That's a policymaker's job. I, I'm an economist. So I, I would read into that, you know, and so like, I think you could simultaneously have low unemployment, which excludes people who are not actively looking for work. That's that employment metric that we always hear about, right? Um, while having a labor shortage, because those people would not be counted as unemployed per that unemployment survey, right? But you would see that in the employment population ratio as those folks would have disappeared. Mm, that makes sense. Uh, Jericho Hill joining us on Hertel Radio. Since you brought it up, let me just ask you, because you do live in a world that is data driven. It's analysis driven. It's a metric driven thing. God, I hope um, so. <laughs> we keep, well, we keep us too. We keep talking about uh, pre-COVID. At what point does the data sets have to just reset and go, okay, things have settled down. We're post-COVID now. This is the new reality. Is that three years, five years? When, when you're an economist and you're setting, because economists, you know, you guys work off models a lot, you work off projections. When is it that we just go, okay, and I know COVID's not over yet, but when is it that you're just going to have to be like, all right, pre-COVID was pre-COVID and that's not coming back. This is the new normal. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't think pre-COVID is coming back. Um, I mean, for, for starters, I think you have a significant chunk of the white collar workforce that will be uh, working mainly from home. Uh, going forward, and that that's been a change. Um, I think that you're going to see companies. Uh, and I was, I was. This is this is a, this is a re really good uh, link that I was watching on CNBC about uh, warehousing and the amount of um, building and construction of warehouses in the U.S. to to handle supply chain logistics has been uh, going gangbusters over the last uh, two or three years. Uh, and and folks are uh, companies are leasing out these buildings before they're even even constructed. Um, so, you know, I would, 
when I think about that, you know, I think, you know, the, the model of how we got our goods before, which was just in time, had almost no resiliency in the face of a global economic shutdown caused by a virus. So I suspect that we'll move possibly from a just-in-time system over a couple of years to a just-in-case system. Well, there'll be some redundancy uh, and, and some ability to handle uh, a, a crisis of sorts that would happen to keep goods moving. That pretends probably the construction of a lot more warehouses and a lot possibly more rural uh, areas. Think of, think of a rural area wedged in between two cities. Think of um, uh, uh, the border of Georgia and Alabama on I-20, you know, that you can have a supply chain hub there with warehouses to serve both cities. You know, so, you know, I think you'll see that happen over the next couple of years and you'll see the supply chain change and how it's going and how businesses are going to plan for these things. Because uh, I think folks were fooling themselves that uh, we can have a lot of folks living very close to each other um, and also close to animals and not have virus transmission. And finally, one broke through to the extent that, you know, one hadn't before. We've seen scary outbreaks of Ebola in Africa. Um, and the unfortunate thing for the folks in Africa was the Ebola was exceeding, exceedingly deadly. The fortunate thing for the rest of the world was it was so deadly it prevented transmission. <laughs> you know, what but finally it? we got something that, that, you know, sort of was transmittable enough and killed enough that it, it caused the world to shut down for a while and still dealing with that ramification. Yeah. What, what is it that you think? Cause I think one of the things that really is going to come out of this COVID thing is, do you f- get a sense that uh, awareness of how economics works more? I, I can, I'm more of a transportation guy with my background. So it's been a lot of fun because now I get to talk supply chain and transportation, which nobody really cared about until all of a sudden now they all care about it. And we'll talk about it. Um, <laughs> Your time is now buddy. <laughs> yeah. It's like all of a sudden I can talk about, you know, uh, transitory, transitory warehousing and fun stuff like that. Um, But the point is, do you see that we're getting more awareness of economics and more awareness of things like the supply chain in a healthy way? Uh, Are people more interested in economics? What's your feel of it? Because I know you've got friends and family that know you're the economist guy, so they're probably hitting you up with, hey, why why is gas prices high or whatever the case may be? Do you feel like we may be getting more awareness out of this or do you think people are just digging in on what they already thought and not really growing from this experience any i mean my sort of my operating principle when i think about how folks um adjust to new beliefs in the economy is that we forget the last crisis um after a while we forget the lessons that we've learned and we repeat the mistakes at some point so i think right now we're all hyper vigilant um, we're, 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 we're clearly everybody's more aware about the supply chain. That's a word that now everybody knows. Um, 10 years from now, I think it'll be a new word. I hate to be a little depressing, but let's, let's, you know, I think that, um, I think that, uh, the Patrick Chovanek, which is so, someone who I follow on Twitter, you know, basically he was talking about like, look, we're watching our politicians in some ways react to this crisis as if it was a crisis from a couple of years ago. Um, you know, and I, I want to make sure, like, I'm not like trying to, to throw blame on one party or the other, but let's just look at the Republican line right now, which is about this crazy hyperinflation. 
okay, our parents dealt with crazy hyperinflation, right? That was double-digit inflation during the, the latter part of the Ford and Carter years and a little bit of Reagan, right? Um, that's nothing like what we're talking about, you know, today. But yet we're using uh, that inflation as a cudgel to be like, hey, let's let's warn that this um, that, that this that this spike, which is you know three times less in magnitude than what we saw you know, in the, in the late, late seventies, early eighties, you know, is now the, the number one issue du jour for, for, for folks. And, and maybe that's, I think that's right for Paul, for the Republicans to do in terms of leveraging political, you know, ability to win in 2022, it makes perfect sense. But is the policy prescription that we need to have to fight inflation, the same thing that we had fight inflation uh, with Volcker in 20, you know, back, back then, probably not. And if we applied that same lesson, we'd probably wind up throwing the economy into yet another recession. Yeah. So uh, I'm just glad that we have an adult in charge of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, which is Jerome Powell, who's going to be sticking around pending Congress, not losing their mind and approving him. Uh, one quick more question. This is a little more political, but since you talked about Republicans, uh, Joe Biden is in the White House. Democrats have can nominally have control of Congress. I understand it's a split Senate. Um, do they have a messaging problem on the economy? Because I understand what you're saying about it's a spike, but it's three times less than the 70s. And it's not that... I don't think the president and his team and his comms team going, oh, no, the economy is actually great when people are noticing things like the used car prices, like higher fuel prices. This seems like a very bad strategy to me uh, because it does two things that you never want to do is one, it it doesn't mesh with reality for people. And two is it comes across as condescending. But does that feel like it to you as the economist? Does the White House have a messaging problem on the economy right now? I think they do. I think their message is tone deaf. Tone deaf. I would agree with that. I, I think, you know, it's one thing to say, yeah, inflation is, is, is fairly high right now for lots of reasons. A lot of these reasons are outside of our control that we can't do anything about. And we're working really, really hard to, you know, do what we can. But, you know, here's A, B and C that we got to we got to see happen before this resolves. Um, and to say that, you know, you can't really do a lot about it. Oh, we're going to release some of our strategic reserve of petroleum. That won't really do much except you know, a, a couple of cents at the gas pump, you know, so like what, you know, they, they, they seem to not acknowledge um, sort of the, the, the pain. They also have done a very poor job of messaging what they have accomplished. There was a, a day or two ago, there was an image of Joe Manchin walking around with a note card with all the things the Democrats have done. And the average voter has no idea that those things have been done and that they were good. Uh, because they have done a very good job of selling their victories. They have not done a good job of selling their victories. Um, and, you know, I, I would say this, if, if someone wants to, uh, to, to ask me if I'm willing to bet on uh, Biden presidency after 2024, I, I'd really need a lot of odds for, for that right now. Uh, I need a lot of odds for a Democratic House in 2022 right now. I, I think that the uh, uh, they're they're facing a lot of uh, issues that are not of their own making, but I I think um, personally they they've made a lot of issues that were of their own making as well, and they've not responded very well on those. And I think messaging is a big one. Yeah, the fun part about being in power is you're going to get the blame whether you deserve it or not. So you better do something to uh, at least put your stamp on it because you're going to get the blame one way or the other. So at least do something. And right, I, and we're and right now ahead. voters voters, I mean it's it sounds bad. Uh, I don't think the average voter cares so much now about what happened on January 6th. I really do as a government employee, 
Um, but I think that's not so salient, right? What's salient right now is how do I visit my family for Christmas? Yep. And what's yep. it costing me there? Um, yep. And I think I, I think we cleared one hurdle. I think a lot of people were scared we weren't going to be able to have a school year. It looks like we may be ha- able to have that. But going into the winter, we know there's probably going to be a spike. I think, I, I think the schools closing is the great economic thing that nobody talks about. Is just a complete disruptor that nobody had a model for. But that's another. Nobody had a model, but, but you know what? I mean, a, a, a very poor silver lining that's going to come out of it. We're going to basically see what happens when schools shut down for two years, and we'll see that in the data. Yeah. And unfortunately, we will probably see that for a segment of the school-age population, uh, their, their test outcomes, their life outcomes later on will be uh, inexorably for the worse. Yeah. Um, and. The, I think the real challenge for us as we think about, you know, all the policy choices that we've been making, you know, in this crisis is what would have happened had we not done X? What would happen if we had done those stimulus checks? What would happen if we kept the schools open? We don't really know. We can look at what other countries have done, right, um, that are similar enough to us but had different responses and try to tease that out. But ultimately, we, we don't know. And so we don't really see the state of like, what if we hadn't done these things? So we sort of like play a guessing game. Yeah. Jericho Hill, I lean on him for a lot of opinions. Uh, some other time we will bring him on and he can do his rant about the current state of professional wrestling. Uh, and all his opinions are his and his alone and not his employers. But folk, do let the folks know where they can find you because you're a great follower and you're a very talented writer. And we're proud to have you at Ordinary-Times.com. Let people know where they can find you, my friend. Uh, you can find me on Ordinary Times and you can find me on Twitter under the handle Moto Economist. That's Moto, C-O-N-O-M-I-S-T, Moto Economist. You're an economist, not a speller, dang it. Yes, but, uh, but I, I'm also an economist that rides a motorcycle, so maybe not risk averse as much as I should be. <laughs> Jericho Hill, great <laughs> stuff, sir. Thank you for joining us on Hard Talk Radio today. Have a great answer. Thank you, sir. Welcome back to Hertel Radio. I'm Andrew Donson. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you've missed any of the episodes of either Hertel Radio, which is the weekday uh, version of what we do here, or if you missed any of the Hertel podcasts, the excellent long-form discussions we have with knowledgeable guests to turn down the noise of the news cycle, all of those are available if you subscribe to the program. You can subscribe on YouTube and watch it, or you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, wherever we're on all those platforms. Subscribing gets you both. You get the weekdays, uh, Hertel Radio, and the long-form long form Hertel podcast we hope you check it out you can go back and watch all the past episodes we're up to 31 episodes on the podcast uh the latest our friend dennis sanders will be exerting soon for you on the radio program as well also we're streaming on the big talker across all their platforms the listen live tab on their website you can download their app listen that way or on their facebook page if you're big on the facebook the facebook videos are there streaming at 6 a.m and a replay at 3 p.m and if you go on the facebook video page you can watch it anytime Wherever you are across the street or around the world, we're sure glad you take a little bit of time to listen to the program. That'll do it for Herd Tell for this Monday, December the 13th. Thank you so much for joining us wherever you are across the street or around the world. We hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. Till we talk to you next time, y'all take 
All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Spring is in full bloom. Are your finances? With the Chime Secured Credit Builder Visa Credit Card, you can build credit with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments, all with no annual fees or interest. With Chime's Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores right away. Get started today at Chime.com build. That's Chime.com build. Chime feels like progress. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by the Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal and OTC advance fees may apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com disclosures for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.